Hello, this is Dr. Nigam Aurora here with How to Launch an Industry. I'm pleased to share the first episode from our three-part series live from Psychedelic Science 2023, where our team conducted interviews with leaders in the psychedelics industry live from the exhibit hall floor at the largest psychedelics conference in modern history. The first episode, which you're listening to now, focuses on research. Keep an eye out for episodes two and three focused on business and culture, respectively, to drop in the coming weeks. Here's how the interviews were structured. First, we frame the moment to our interviewees as follows. A variety of psychedelics are undergoing clinical trials for numerous indications. Decrim and medical programs are sweeping the nation and the globe. And 13,000 of us who work in the industry or who simply care to learn about its many facets and potentials are here together, literally under one roof, at the largest psychedelics conference in modern history. With that frame, we asked each interviewee the same four questions. What does this moment mean to you professionally? What does this moment mean to you personally? What is a barrier you faced working in psychedelics and have recent changes in the industry made that better or worse? And is there anything else that you'd like to share with our audience here at HLI? On this science-focused episode, we have interviews from the following folks. Dr. Andrew Bartinsky, the VP of Operations at the Alexander Shulgin Research Institute, Dr. Jackie Von Somm, co-founder and chief scientific officer at Silera, Lorianne Cibolo from the Center for Neuroscience of Psychedelics at Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston, Dr. Nicole Galveo Cuejo, who is a professor at Federale University of Rio Grande do Norte in Brazil and Western Sydney University in Australia. We close out the episode with Dr. Harry McElroy, who is clinical director at BioReset Medical and chair of the board of directors at Shakruna Institute. So with that, we'll go ahead and jump into my first interview with Dr. Bartinsky from the Alexander Shulgin Research Institute. Yeah, of course. Hope you listen. The first question I'd like to ask you is, what does it mean to you on a professional level? Yeah, so I think what's really happening right now is, is sort of an evolution of the entire industry. Uh, and you think about people like uh, Sasha and Albert Hoffman, who are sort of the explorers in this space, sort of going out on their own at the very beginning. We've now had the pioneers follow behind them, people like Nick and Paul, the founders of the Institute. And now we're at the point where the settlers are coming in and we're really starting to build a pretty large community where this is talked about sort of in the public space with everyone having the potential to get involved. And so I think that we're at a watershed moment in that we're really on the precipice of this becoming broadly accessible uh, and an industry that's going to be a part of many people's lives as we look for better and better mental health treatments. Definitely. And I, uh, I like this... Um way that you're describing it. And I heard Paul describe it in a similar way uh, during his talk um, yesterday. And this this kind of concept of settlers and, and pilgrimage and the city and yeah. you gotta yeah. you gotta build the you know the town square and the city block in a basic structure. You gotta put something on top of yeah. it. Yeah. And um it's it's really um I hadn't really thought about it just like that, but it's one of those things that once I heard it, it, it was sticky in my mind. That's I like exactly that. why it, the, the metaphor is so beautiful. And it really reflects whenever something new and sort of edgy and perhaps a little bit dangerous takes hold, it's not going to be everyone who adopts it on day one. And yeah. so you have to be ready to sort of build that community and meet people where they are and when they're ready to sort of come in. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. So 
Next question, similar. What does this moment mean to you on a personal level? Yeah, so uh, psychedelics are extremely powerful from an experiential standpoint. And so when you sort of think about it and you have that experience for the first time, it's really sticky and you kind of realize that it's a state that's different than anything else you've ever seen before. Uh, and so getting the opportunity to personally contribute to the community and now work on this in a way that hopefully I can expand the tools that are out there is deeply meaningful. Um, and being able to hopefully help in the mental health space in particular uh, is an area where I think there's a crisis right now, especially post-COVID. Um, and anything that we can do to sort of help people better themselves and better their lives uh, is a deeply meaningful pursuit. Definitely. And um, I will say, uh, you know, uh, we, we have a, a press badge um, for the podcast, for the conference. And um, I was at the uh, press release yesterday when yes. uh, ASRI was kind of making the formal announcement of your two molecules, um, uh, ASR, R being important, uh, 2001 and 3001. And um, really just uh, kind of plugging in with what you were saying, appreciating the effort to bring a tailored solution for the modern mental health landscape. Yeah, I, th I think the way you're framing it is exactly right. Like the classical psychedelics are really, really good for some people, but they're not perfect for what we're trying to get out in mental health, perhaps. Yeah. Uh, and so what we're trying to do at ASRI is provide additional tools for the tool chest that hopefully allow more people to be able to access these experiences and therapies. Um, and so like you said, ASR 3001, we're hoping to shorten the duration of the trip a little bit while still maintaining that mental state that's so helpful for therapeutic breakthroughs. Uh, and for 2001, we're trying to bring an experience that's much more subtle and closer to a microdose effect where we could still hopefully get the plasticity and mood and behavior change, uh, but perhaps without the overwhelming, uh, for some people, hallucinations. Definitely. And uh, just uh, another thing that um, really I'll just share with the audience. It was, um, you know, I'll be honest, uh, I've been doing this podcast for three years. I've been getting press passes more regularly in about the last year. So I haven't been to a lot of press conferences, but um, that press conference was so cool because I found myself um, in a rather intimate setting discussing uh, with you and the two founders of ASRI um, about um, the uh, heart valvopathy risk and arrhythmia yeah. risk yeah. of the traditional psychedelics, which folks like yourself are working to eliminate while maintaining the uh, legacy built by Shulgin to get the best out of the molecules. Exactly, and exactly. You're really at the heart of sort of what we're trying to accomplish. The heart, the yeah. heart, we're at the heart of saving the heart and the mind. <laughs> um, so, um, yeah, fascinating stuff. Fascinating, fascinating stuff. And um, everyone who listens to this show knows that I'm a big Shulgin fan. And anyone who's a PhD chemist in psychedelics, I don't know what you're doing if you're not, right? Yeah, yeah. So. I mean, <laughs> the number of compounds that he was able to develop and the diversity of experiences that he was able to sort of put out into the world uh, I think it was really fundamental in sort of laying the foundation for where we are today. Uh, and all we can do is try and live up to the legacy. Uh, a pioneer of large animal studies, among <laughs> other things. Yes, he had his unique techniques, though at the time there were many, many fewer tools available to scientists to even right. study these compounds. Um, and so I think he had a deep, deep-seated personal belief that this was something worth pursuing. And he was sort of willing to put himself at risk to explore. Well, he got his uh, face on the cover of Time Magazine over it, right? So, yep. well, I, uh, listener, you can't see me. I rolled my eyes really hard right <laughs> after I said that. So, anyways, um, just to continue uh, with the interview. So, we've all encountered barriers working in psychedelics. Even with the recent evolutions, changes in the industry, it's not easy, and it hasn't been easy. Yeah. So, um, I'm hoping you can share one barrier that you've dealt with and um, how the kind of recent evolution has changed that. Maybe it's made it easier. Maybe it's made it harder. Uh, I'd love if you could just share about a, a challenge you've had. Yeah, 100%. So uh, I'm a serial entrepreneur, and I started my career working in medical devices before getting into other pharmaceutical pursuits. Um, and when I told a lot of my friends from the industry that I was going to go work on psychedelics, I was sort of met with a little bit of a side eye. Um, and so especially on, you know, the serious people in the pharmaceutical industry who are working on creating medicines, 
there's still a lot of skepticism. Um, and so I think part of the next generation of this, this uh, movement is going to be how do we address that skepticism at scale and how do we come with data in our hands to show that these medicines are really super effective uh, and are in the same boat as any other medication that you would prescribe to a patient. And uh, even to go a little deeper on that one, I forget who I was speaking with. I've, do, I've done like so many interviews this conference. <laughs> I forget who I was speaking with, but um, we were talking about um, that a lot of the treatments that, you know, some of your colleagues who work in pharmaceuticals, um, traditional pharmaceuticals, a lot of the treatments that really are treating downstream biological, biochemical, physiological issues that occur from a disruption in a fundamental thing, like the way your nervous system functions or yeah. the balance of your um, uh, neurotransmitters or so on and so forth. So there's there's some argument uh, that I think people in the know understand and, and are, that's why this effort is going in, that the value of psychedelics is actually we can affect change earlier in the process. Would you, would you agree? Yeah, yeah, I think there's been some really, really interesting presentations this week specifically on this sort of mechanistic thing that psychedelics are doing to the brain as opposed to what something like an SSRI is right. doing. And so trying to actually affect structural change in the brain to help to change the way it is wired to try and change our thought patterns and behavior patterns uh, is a really fundamental shift in the way you're treating mental health which has been historically, you're right, trying to balance neurotransmitters and trying to, yeah, see what you can do there. Right, right. So um, uh, I just want to open it up here at the end. Uh, if there's anything else uh, you want to share about, um, it's 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 up to you. I, I think it would be cool to talk a little bit just about what is ASRI and, and what are you all doing there? I, I Just in case of listeners aren't familiar. Yeah, no, I think it's it's great to give sort of a historical overview of how we got to where we are today and where we're hoping to go in you know the next two to five years, let's say. Um, and so Nick and Paul both directly worked with Sasha throughout the course of his life. Uh, and once he passed, Anne became involved with Nick and Paul and helped to found ASRI. And so what we've been doing since we were incorporated in 2021 is trying to really develop new compounds with therapeutic potential. And so we're, we're really excited to announce those first two leads uh, that we're interested in pursuing. But obviously, there's many, many more where that came from. And there are also many, many different modalities where these drugs could have really important therapeutic benefit. And so over the next year or two, we're going to be working on those first two compounds, getting them into the clinic, starting to see if we can get some of that evidence to back their use for therapeutic indications, and at the same time, keep building the legacy and library of compounds in the space to see what else is out there and keep exploring. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for taking some time to talk to us here at HLI. We hope you have a great rest of the conference. And I look forward to seeing you Oceanside when we get back to San Francisco. Yeah, it was great to meet a neighbor who probably lives a half mile away from me, a thousand miles from home. <laughs> this, uh, Even though I'm extending an interview here, I'll just share a story with the interview. So yeah, yeah. Andrew and I, as I already mentioned, we met yesterday at the, the press release and we just started chatting. Turns out we both live about four or five blocks from the Pacific Ocean and about four or five blocks from each other. Yeah. And it's um, it's just wild. one of those things where you got sometimes you wonder why two people find themselves in two different places. And then sometimes you don't wonder why. It just makes sense. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> anyway. Cool. Yeah. All right, listener. Thanks again. Andrew, thanks again. Oh, um, thank you so much. It's, uh, it's been a pleasure. We'll be back soon. Next up, listener, we have my interview with Dr. Jackie Von Somm from Silera. So, Jackie, I want to ask you, what does this moment mean to you on a professional level? Yeah, so first of all, it's overwhelming in a very good way uh, that there are just so many people here, but also passionate people, whether it be from science or other walks of life. I think it's been pretty amazing. Uh, for me professionally, the biggest 
you know, aspect of it is that I, I'm a natural products chemist by trade. So everything about really psychedelics, similar to the cannabis industry, is really motivated, but also inspired by natural products and by different compounds from nature. So for me on a professional level, to see this many people who care about really what I consider natural products at the end of the day is pretty phenomenal. So I, I just love the fact that it's getting a lot more attention again, like it used to have and that it very much deserves. Yeah, absolutely. And I was uh, just for a moment, I was like, wait, but the uh, scaffolds that your work at Silera is mostly inspired by are natural products. Yes. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Perfect. <laughs> um, so uh, similar question, but I'm very curious on a personal level. What does it mean to you? So for me personally, I'd say I've already noticed my conversations here quickly turn to how someone is doing on a much more emotional and spiritual level than necessarily just coming right up to me and asking me how business is going, how much money someone's making, you know, how much, I mean, there's just the, the state of consciousness and where everybody's mind is at is so much more open. And I've had some people who I know run VCs for tens, hundreds of millions of dollars. And our conversation within 10 or 15 minutes turned into someone's very personal life and they were almost in tears, you know? So I just love that openness. And so for me personally, those are the kinds of relationships I'm here for. That's what I live life for is to have these more open conversations and not really be guarded. Like a lot of the biotech and pharma industry can be sometimes. So I've really appreciated it. Absolutely. I will say, um, I'm kind of interviewing myself now, but I just want to jump in to identify <laughs> is that just sitting here, I mean, we're live on the exhibit floor, right? We're right on the corner. And just sitting here as I've been doing these interviews and just smiling at strangers. I have smiled at no <laughs> less than like a hundred. This is not an, an exaggeration in any way. I smiled at no less than a hundred strangers today. Yeah. Just walking by this booth <laughs> and most of them smile back at me. Yeah. And it's just, it's one of those environments, um, you know, I live in San Francisco, even I've been out here in the city in Denver. It's like, it is kind of funny. I leave the conference center and I'm used to just like smiling and to everyone, all these strangers. And then I go outside, I'm smiling people and they're not smiling back. <laughs> I was like, oh yeah, okay. I'm outside my <laughs> psychedelic safe zone, you know? Right. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, okay. The next question, Jackie, is about barriers, about challenges. So can you share one barrier that you've encountered when working with psychedelics and share a little bit about um, if the kind of current evolution of the industry, this moment we framed, is that is that helping remove that barrier or is it making it worse? Yeah, I think that's a really good question actually about whether or not it's really helping or <laughs> making it more complicated sometimes. Yeah. I think that the biggest barrier we've usually had being in more of like the the biotech pharmaceutical kind of space, I'd say for psychedelics has been that the synthetic compounds and a lot of these other aspects of what we do are really not valid in the space sometimes. And I think that being able to really bridge the gaps between groups of people that are really interested in more of the natural medicine and the history of psychedelics versus kind of the newer, more scientific research focused, more biotech probably model. Yeah. I think really bridging that yeah. has been probably our biggest barrier since the beginning. I feel like, honestly, I feel like it's gotten better, but I do feel like I still will still get a lot of questions around, you know, whether or not our company is just trying to make the next SSRIs. And it's just like, well, well, no, the goal is to be much, much, much better than anything that's really happened previously right. in that space. But right. I think that honestly, I think it has gotten better, though. I don't I don't think it's gotten worse because I think it's also as MDMA goes through phase three, as these other companies go through multiple phases of clinical trials. And I think as more people recognize that quite a few psychedelics are actually synthetics, they're not natural compounds like MDMA, ketamine, LSD, like we have quite a few examples. I think it's actually gotten quite a bit better for us um, and, and the model that we have. So, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, just like funny anecdote. Uh, they have these press release sessions here at the conference. So I was at a, a press release for the uh, Alexander Shulgin Research Institute. And they were talking about, uh, kind of like you did at Silera, where you had the announcement for your new compounds. So they did a press release here at the conference uh, for uh, announcing two of their compounds. And... Um, 
there was a guy sitting in the front row in there who I got the impression that he was like a YouTuber. Um, he, he, he was like streaming at his tripod and his camera, which is fine. I mean, that, that's cool, whatever. But um, uh, he clearly was not uh, up to speed on drug development in the psychedelics industry or anything like that because, or, or anything about Shulgin Institute because he asks, can you tell us about the extraction process? And it was just one of those moments where it was like, this is synthetic chemistry. That's, yeah, that's you the know? wrong type of yeah, chemistry. This is like, yeah, so it was, it was just kind of one of those moments. And, and your your um, comment kind of reminded me of that. So uh, so for the last question, Jackie, I'm going to first say, you know, just say anything you want here. I'm just curious what you want to say. But I'm just going to pose a question that you can answer or not answer. Um, I'm interested uh, for you to share with the audience a little more about what you're saying about what you're actually doing at Silera, what you're creating, what you're pursuing uh, in drug development. Um, can you just share a little bit about it? Um, what, what are you working on? Yeah. So our focus pretty much the entire time we started the company was how do we create more accessible psychedelics? So we really knew that the current a lot of the current models weren't going to be accessible to a lot of people, whether it be financially, whether it be logistically, manufacturing, whatever it might be. So we started that out as, well, let's design ways to make DMT non-invasive. So yeah. we created a transdermal patch. Yeah. Or, and let's keep it non-hallucinogenic. So we kept it at sub-hallucinogenic dosages. And then we decided, well, there's got to be ways to make classic psychedelics, less hallucinogenic. If you just do classic structure activity relationships, organic yeah. chemistry, that typical, you know, model, if we really put the research in that needed to be done, even all the way back in Shulgin's time, then we could come up with a lot of unique compounds that might have properties we really want them to have. So that, that's been the model at Solera is how could we take what Shulgin did and build off it and make it even better? Because let's be honest, how pure were some of his samples? nobody really knows or, or what yeah. were the actual structures in some cases if he didn't have an NMR. So it's, it's taking what he did and then really building off of it. Same with David Nichols, a lot of these groups that worked on tryptamines, we wanted to take that and expand and make it even better. Definitely. And I think it's like, uh, Shulgin is definitely one of those people that, uh, you know, he's a chemist that spawned a thousand chemists, you know? So, uh, and I also just want to say like something so cool about psychedelic science. Um, this conference is literally, you know, listener, as Jackie is telling me this, um, one, I'm pretty sure that uh, Earth Arrowhead literally just walked by the booth three different <laughs> times. And in between, like, as I look at him, I look past Jackie, past Earth Arrowhead in the hallway, into the Alexander Shulgin Research uh, booth, where I'm looking at Graham Pachenik and the founders of ASRI <laughs> yeah. discussing their IP. Yeah, I just, saw, I just saw and, Sam B. walk by, too, from... Just so many different companies and so many different people. It's yeah. kind of amazing. I had, oh, I had lunch and right next to my table was um, Dennis McKenna. Yeah. And I was like, oh, he's right next to me. Yeah, it's, uh, it is truly, uh, truly phenomenal. It's only day one. Just to do some really like time stamping stuff. It is one, oh, excuse me. It's 2.53 Mountain Time on Wednesday, the first day of the conference. And I feel like I've been here for a month. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, well, Jackie, thanks so much for joining us. Um, again, listener, Jackie's on our cast at the pod. Um, so check out the other episode she's been on. Uh, make sure to check out Silera, and we'll be back with another interview soon. Thanks, Jackie. Yeah, thanks, Nigam. All right, listener, we're going to take a short break for a message from the sponsor of this episode, and we'll be back with three more fascinating interviews from Psychedelic Science 2023. Hello, this is Jehan Marku. If you're looking for life sciences consulting in cannabis and psychedelics, Look no further than Marku and Aurora. At our firm, we provide expert services from experimental design to technical project management and investor due diligence. If it has to do with the fundamentals and novel drug areas, we're your go-to. Reach out to us at marku-aurora.com to schedule a discovery call today. 
Remember that the application of scientific approaches and properly gathered data can give you an edge towards reaching your goal. Next up, my colleague, Dr. Neil Ritter, who is supporting the HLI booth at the conference, interviews Lorian Cibolo from the Center for Neuroscience of Psychedelics at Massachusetts General Hospital. I want to ask you, what does this moment mean for you on a professional level? Well, so as you said, I'm, I'm the program manager for the, for the center at Mass General, and we also go by CNP. Um, so, you, you know, the, the history of Harvard with psychedelics and, and finally having a center at Mass General, which is associated with Harvard, uh, that has psychedelics in the title is, is already a, a great moment uh, in the history of the psychedelic renaissance. Um, and being here in that capacity is really a special moment because I actually work remotely and this has been a moment for me to meet a lot of the people that I've collaborated with and interacted with over the past two years since I've had this role um, in person. How long has the Center for uh, Neuropsychedelic Research at Mass General been, been around? Two and a half years at this point. Yeah, it launched. Um, it launched really uh, during the pandemic, um, and uh, the center uh, launched as a virtual place and um, as part of the hospital. And you can think of it as an umbrella for researchers and clinicians at Mass General who are interested in doing psychedelic research and uh, investigating psychedelic medicine and psychedelic care for their patients. And as things are coming back in person, you know, so are we, and we're really excited to, to be here and uh, be here on behalf of Mass General at the conference with, with everyone else really in the field. Yeah, well, it's, it's really amazing for Mass General to be participating in a conference like this. I agree. Uh, so how, how about on a personal level? Well, what, what does it mean for you to be here, uh, to, to you? Right. Well, on a personal level, it's also really interesting because a lot of my friends are here. And, um, you know, I'm involved with psychedelics uh, at Mass General through my job, but also I do harm reduction work um, for the Zendo project. And I get to see people that I've interacted with in very different contexts than, um, you know, a conference. And it's lovely just to see everyone who you know, cares so much. A lot of people here are people who are here out of uh, vocation and really like a call um, for their uh, personal interests and, and professional endeavor at the same time. And it's interesting to see these different crowds collide and they're actually not all, not all that different. You know, a lot of us actually belong to the psychedelic movement in multiple different capacities. Is uh are the conversations you're having and the people that you've met here who you who you've expected to meet here? Uh, in part, and then I ran into people that I didn't know were going to be here, and actually colleagues at Mass General that I didn't necessarily know were part of um, you know like the psychedelic renaissance in a in a professional um, you know in a, in a professional aspect as well. And this is this is very good for me because I, I run a um, an interest group at Mass General on psychedelic research, uh, and one of my efforts there is to try to build community, uh, kind of a, like pan MGH. Um, group for anyone who's interested in psychedelic research. And so I've actually met a few people that I need to add to this group uh, simply because I, you know, did not know that they were, uh, uh, they were part of the movement. The, the conference is working. It's, uh, it's doing what I think it, it intended. It's, it's really exciting to hear and feel the vibe of all the conversations that, uh, that have been happening here. Right. So, can you share a, uh, a barrier or challenge you've had to deal with during your involvement with psychedelics? And have changes in the industry recently made it better or worse? So that's a good question because uh, there's obviously a lot of different obstacles and I think that um, you know everyone lives these obstacles differently but by and large this kind of overarching themes in terms of what the field has to deal with um, as a group. One that's particularly relevant to me um, in 
you know, because I work with um, academic research. So it's not me directly, but a lot of the people that I work with have to deal with the whole regulatory pathway of getting their projects approved, right? And so from the inception of having an idea for a research project that would bring in data to meet some of the needs we have in terms of you know, evidence that is still needed uh, to really decide what and how we're going to move forward with integrating psychedelics in our, in our future society, um, to actually you know, being able to dose people and work with them and collect the data, um, it's easily over, over a year. I mean, like, you know, when you, when you start on this journey, and I do have a lot of people who reach out to me and say, look, I'm interested in doing psychedelic research, how do I go on about it? And it's like, well, first of all, do you have patience? Um, and once you draw up your protocol and you have funding, so I'm not going into the uh, barrier of funding, but I'm sure other people have mentioned this here. Once you have all that, then you go to the FDA and depending on which group of the FDA uh, you know you interact with, they might not even have like worked with psychedelic studies at all, and still so still carry a lot of the. Wait, what is it you want to study and us to approve? Um, and so once you've got that, then it's the IRB approval, so the internal review board of uh, the hospital that you're or the um, the research institution you're affiliated with who has to decide that this is uh, a study that you know respects all their ethical standards. And once you do that, um, because this is psychedelics and we're still talking about Schedule One substances, then you have to go to uh, the Drug Enforcement Agency, the DEA, and get your approval there. And then your principal investigators will have to get a license that is specific to a um, particular substance. Um, so, you know, if you want to work with different substances, then you have to get different licenses. Um, and it comes with a quite a burden of administrative paperwork and also like facilities that you have to have uh, in order to transport the um, the substances and, and show basically the whole path from when you acquire them to when you you give them to um, um, you know study participants and. We're a mass general, um, you know, we have basically the means both in terms, both like financials, but also in terms of time and in terms of the legalities that that implies to carry this forward. But I'm thinking of people who are doing very legitimate research in institutions that don't necessarily have the sort of infrastructure that can support um, these endeavors and that they're still very much facing these barriers. Like we have the luxury to be able to even think of actually putting ourselves through this, um, through this. <laughs> uh, the ringer. Yeah, basically. Um, but yeah, a lot of researchers with very good intentions and, and very good ideas that need to be investigated just don't. Yeah, the, the how to do anything seems to be a very persistent question here it's uh you know how do you do research how do you start a company is you know is what i'm doing legal now here uh in you know 10 minutes in a day you know everything seems to be changing so so fast um but of all places to be to try to answer those questions uh, you know the, the maps conference with with rick dublin who figured out how to make progress here in the face of uh <laughs> in the face of, uh, of of everything that uh people threw in, in his way um it's probably a good pretty good place for that. It yeah. is, and we're really at a time where there is a uh, an ocean of opportunity ahead of us and things are going to start getting defined and and some, you know, some of the field is going to prune um, as we figure some of these regulatory challenges out as the uh, the funding space figures itself out. Um, and it's both frankly overwhelming uh, at times to see all the projects that are just starting um, and also I mean, terribly exciting to be present for this right now. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining us and um, yeah, enjoy your, enjoy your time at this conference. Thanks so much for having me.
This next interview is a real treat as our guest is a leading clinical researcher of ayahuasca, pure DMT, and ketamine in Brazil. Here's my interview with Dr. Nicole Galveo Cuejo, who is a professor at Federale University of Rio Grande do Norte in Brazil, as well as a professor at Western Sydney University in Australia. So I want to ask you, what does this moment mean to you on a professional level? Um, this is so important because I have been working with psychedelics more than a decade. Mm. So we start our trial with ayahuasca in resistant depressive patients like in 2015. So it's a long time ago. Um, and in that time, we saw how it was important for those patients. After just one dose session with ayahuasca, some part of them uh, shows remission. Large mm. part improved the depressive symptoms, but like almost 40% of the patients showed remission. I mean, no more depressive symptoms. So mm. uh, since then, I have more studied with um, DMT, uh, ketamine, and in my work day, I can see the improvement of the patients. Yeah. And now we can show this improvement, this success, because it's a success. Yeah. Uh, I have patients that have depression for more than 20 years. Wow. Yeah. So after just one dose session of ayahuasca, they improve the symptoms. It's so glad to see it. I'm feeling so happy. Now I can share all these with how these people here in this Congress, almost 2,000 people. 2,000 people. Here, 12,000. 12,000? Yeah. Oh, here at the conference, of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's, it's huge. It's huge. It's a huge Congress. And it's important to hear that the science show it to the population. Yeah. Because probably will help in the, in the next step for the laws, the discriminalization, and so all next steps. My uh, understanding is that your talk here on Wednesday was extremely well attended. Yeah, it was. I'm very glad. And, uh, you know, I, I had nothing to do with organizing this conference, but I just want to say as a attendee, as a sponsor, as an exhibitor, um, as a scientist, uh, I'm so happy to um, have you here with us and bringing that your research from Brazil, from the home of ayahuasca, um, here to the conference, because that's something um, it's so easy to get stuck in our own worlds. You know, it's uh, United States centric or whatever, but it's not. It's worldwide. These things come from different places. So, so incredible to have you here with us. Um, so I want to ask you the next question. So we talked about the professional side, but I'm curious on the personal side. Can you share what does this moment mean to you personally? So personally, it's... Uh it's a pleasure. I'm so glad to be here, as I said to you. I can show all the study and all the results that we have doing too many years. Uh, MAPS give a huge space for us from Brazil. We have here like six uh, professors showing the results with LSD, ayahuasca, DMT. Mm. We, we do in Brazil a good science. We need to have more... Uh, we need to be more recognized outside of Brazil. Right. So do this podcast help us yeah. a lot. Here, be here in this conference help us a lot. So I'm very glad, very happy to be here today. Same, same, same. <laughs> um, so, and I want to loop back on our last question. I, I want to dig into the the good research that you and your colleagues are doing. But uh, one question prior to that, um, I want to ask about barriers. All of us that have been working with psychedelics as psychoactives have encountered barriers. So I want to ask if you can share one barrier that you've encountered working with psychedelics and if the current um, evolutions in the industry have made that barrier um, a little bit easier, less of a problem, or maybe it made it more of a problem. Can, can you share a little bit on that topic? Yeah, so... For us in Brazil, uh, study psychedelics regarding to law is easier because uh, we have a law in Brazil that regulated the use of ayahuasca in science. So mm. it's not 
difficult to get the license to study ayahuasca there in Brazil. Okay. But on the other hand, the largest challenge for us is regarding money. We don't have money in Brazil to do science. Mm. We have a good hospitals with good equipments. Um, in our studio, in our studies, we always do beside the the investigation of clinical response, we also analyze biological response. Mm. So we do exams like with fMRI, polysonography, EEG, ECG. Uh, so it's very complex. We need money to do it and we don't have money. So it's the mm. largest challenge for us. And uh, we need that this venture capital and the agents outside of Brazil look for us to try to help us in Brazil, because we do uh, high-level science there. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, we are there waiting for people outside of Brazil in the rich country look for us and uh, well, help with money. When, uh, well, th thank you for sharing. That is a, a theme that we've heard from a, few, from a few different groups we've done interviews with, the funding for valuable research and... Um, uh, other valuable areas like protection of indigenous reciprocity and knowledge, um, uh, funding being an issue. So um, I would like to, when we publish this episode, um, we'll make sure to share some links to uh, your studies or if there's somewhere where you are um, using as an intake for people who are interested in funding or we'll just, um, we would like to use our platform here at HLI to help you uh, get the word out and see if we can bring more attention to uh, to your work and see if we can help a little bit. Uh, this is great. This yeah. is great. Because outside of Brazil, people use it to looking for and see results with psilocybin. Uh, so ayahuasca is not so popular outside of Brazil. It's mm. my personal view. Mm. I give many talks um, this year in around San Francisco. I gave some talks there. And most part of the people that just uh, was aware about psilocybin, ketamine, and a little bit about DMT and ayahuasca. So we need to make it more pop popular. Uh, yeah, and it will help a lot. Thank you. <laughs> of course, of course. So um, last question I wanted to ask is... Um, you were sharing with me just before we um, before we jumped on the interview about your research and how you're not only doing research with ayahuasca, but you've also begun um, doing research with uh, clinical trials with pure DMT. Um, could you share a little bit about um, just just um, a little bit more about the the research you're actively doing um, from a high level, just to share with our audience uh, specifically the type of clinical work you're doing. Oh, good. So I have studies for depression since from traditional treatments. I mean, with commercial antidepressants, um, and eat together with meditation, yoga, exercise. But this type of trial is for patient without uh, resistance treatment and for patient more severe I have been doing trials with ketamine ayahuasca and now we start to do trial with DMT the pure DMT because there is two main reason one is DMT has a faster action than ayahuasca mm. so for we like validate a protocol a clinical protocol with DMT it will be easier because it's faster, so low cost. Um, and the other thing, it's uh, ayahuasca, there is a connection with religion mm. and indigenous peoples, and there is a conflict for us, how to integrate the clinical field with religion and indigenous knowledges. So it's very difficult for us how to, to validate a clinical protocol and not integrate the religion part, do you know? So for us, uh, I started to do a trial with DMT uh, was a solution for it too, not just about the the characteristics of DMT uh, regarding to time response, but also regarding to this connection with religion. And yeah, so. Definitely. And it's, um, yeah, that's so interesting to hear. And uh Coming from Brazil, where that's uh, the ayahuasca is a significant part of the culture, and as you're saying, there's religions that it's um, integral to. Um, 
that's just so interesting because in the U.S. Uh, there is this kind of religious um, aspect of psychedelics and you know we have these uh psychedelics churches and all this but that's a little bit that's a little bit different than what's happening in brazil so that's really um really so interesting to learn about you doing studies that are appreciative and um respectful and inclusive of the religion aspect as much as you can be in a clinical trial right uh or at least thinking about recognizing it but then also separately using the pure molecule where that's not necessarily something you need to recognize or focus on, right? Exactly. Actually, so. we isolated the DMT from other plant, not the same plant that is used in ayahuasca right. brew. So, yeah, for us, it's easier to to work with it. Yeah. Because, uh, as you know, in science, we can integrate science and religion. It's a little bit difficult. Our trial was completely apart of religion aspect. Mm. Uh, it was very clinical, very mm. medical protocol. But at the same time, we recognized the value of religion and the use I was asking religion, the social context. We recognize the value of indigenous people and mm. knowledge. So yeah, for us was our option to migrate to isolate DMT to facilitate all this, this challenge regarding religion and indigenous people. Yeah, I'll just say, uh, you know, I um, don't have a uh, knowledge of any of these um, religions uh, related to ayahuasca. I I just don't, I personally am not um, very familiar, but um, I do uh, notice that just in the last um, three years since we've been doing this podcast and I've been diving heavily into learning and reading about psychedelics and um, in a variety of ways and learning more about indigenous use and how, from what I've read, it's just more integral to the culture itself. I, I think what I'm trying to say is in Western culture and American culture, there seems to be the drug, the drug experience, the therapy which is, you know, kind of a rigid therapy, which can can be connected with a drug experience. And that all seems to be separate from the community and the society and the religion and the uh, holistic health and the care of a doctor, the care of the love. It's all just separate. But what I've kind of come to understand, and, and you tell me if this is right or wrong, what I've come to understand is in uh, many indigenous cultures, these things are more connected. And the ceremonial or medical use of psychedelics is more plugged in rather than kind of separate. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So. But uh, it's interesting because in my mind, I believe that the two different pathways is important. I mean, I believe that is important. We have all this context about the psychedelic use uh, and the connection with indigenous people and religion. But at the same time, I also believe that this uh, other way, I mean the medical way and the clinical way to use psychedelics is also important because it's not everybody that would like to be part of a religion. So I, I believe that the two fields are important and must be keeping. And yeah, we can provide more, a better mental health in this way if we have these two options. That's uh, that's actually another uh, theme. I was at a uh, another conference. So I live in San Francisco. We had a conference there, the Psychedelics Therapeutic Drug Development Conference, um, which our podcast had a partnership with. So I was interviewing some folks there, and I was talking to someone at the conference, and uh, they're doing uh, pharmaceutical drug development. They're actually doing drug development funded by the, the uh, United States Department of Defense um, for um, the military, for um, psychedelics-based uh, mental health therapies, right? And so I asked him, I said, hey, what do you think? Uh, you know, there's all this um, controversy about and jostling, you know, should, it, should these things be medicalized? Should they be pharmaceuticalized? Or should they just be decriminalized? Should they be available? Um, in a dispensary like cannabis, like which one's right, which one's wrong? 
And this person said, I thought it was very wise. He said, it's so simple. There's room for everybody. Why, <laughs> why does it need to be a controversy? Why does it need to be right and wrong? Different people are going to have yeah. different preferences. And I think that's exactly what you said, right? Yeah, exactly. So. No doubt. There are many different ways of uh, use and get benefits from psychedelics. Yeah. Uh, maybe if you need to have a disease and get the psychedelic to make you better. And it's important here, I highlight a thing that comes in my mind. We are talking about mental disease, the use of psychedelic for mental disease. But for instance, I have a study that shows that ayahuasca reduce inflammatory uh, biomarkers. So I believe that in a few years, we're going to start to see the use of psychedelic for other type of disease, like inflammatory disease. Yeah. Maybe chronic pains, you know, yeah. autoimmune disease. So uh, people with some disease would be benefits, would get benefits with psychedelic use. But people that just would like to understand more about themselves and make it or uh, get more contact with uh, religions and spirituality, you know, there are many different ways to use and yeah get benefits from psychedelics totally i think um i agree with what you're saying i was at a talk yesterday uh charles nichols talk um who is dave nichols son and um no day uh dr nichols dr dave nichols was recently on the podcast with us but um together they've started a new company um specifically pursuing psychedelic compounds for uh, inflammatory diseases. So it's it's happening, and it's happening with some of the most well-respected researchers and chemists in the field. And then today at the conference, there's a talk uh, panel, which uh, Robin Carhart-Harris, um, who is at uh, UCSF, um, is, is on that panel, and they're talking about psychedelics for pain, exactly like you're saying. So it's, it's definitely happening. Um, so anyways... Uh, Nicole, thank you so much uh, for coming on the show. I just want to make a funny comment. Uh, usually for these um, quick interviews at the conference, we've been capping them at 10 minutes. You and I have been chatting for 20, and I want to say a new rule for interviews on the show at conferences. If you come from another continent, we'll give you double the time. <laughs> That's great. That's yeah. great. It was a good catch-up. I'm very glad to be here. I would like to thank you again, and thank you for watching or listen how to launch an, an industry <laughs> of course well it's been so great to have you and we'll see you again soon thank you bye <laughs>
of a doctor working with patients in different modalities than you might find at, um, you know, Kaiser Permanente and, yeah. and so forth. So um, really appreciate your reply on that. Uh, so related question, I want to ask, what does it mean to you on a personal level? I think, I think, uh, you know, part of this is this, my interest in this was personal before professional for sure. Mm. And, and I would say that really what it's allowing me to do is to, first of all, have a blend between my, my personal interest and my professional uh, applications, which is fun. And, and, and I like to have that seamlessness. And so that's been something that's been really exciting. And it's also allowed me to share more of my personal experience with patients, which I, I didn't do as much, you know, five or 10 years ago. And so I would say that that's a lot of it. And, you know, it's also really just like the work that you're doing, like the, the, the amount of interest and, and, and different applications to psychedelics, whether it be for, you know, directly more mental health, psychological, psychiatric indications, but also for cluster headaches, for you know more off-label stuff. I think it's really um, it's a super interesting time. Yeah, it's, um, it is just fascinating. As a fundamental scientist um, working in drug development, uh, it is downright fascinating. And it's, it's uh, not even a question of what to research. It's a question of what to research first. Like, what do we have the best approach for now? What building block do yeah. we need to put, yeah. you know, first lay down? So I think, um, yeah, no, I just, I just completely agree with you. And I also agree with you about the fact that, you know, 5, 10, 15 years ago, I couldn't say the word cannabis out loud to anybody. Yeah. You know, whether it was for health, whether it was for community, it didn't matter. You just yeah. couldn't say it. Yep. Much less psychedelics. Absolutely. Couldn't say it. Absolutely. Right? So, yeah. um Whole new paradigm, right? No, whole new paradigm. And, and to, to piggyback on what you were saying, too, is I think having met some of your friends, there are people that are going to be developing some of these drugs that, that, that maybe still don't, but certainly did not necessarily have an interest in psychedelics. I mean, it's becoming yeah. so yeah. mainstream from an academic perspective as well. And like that's, that's just going to really open up a lot of opportunities in yeah. ways that, that gets it out of that more small tribal thing that it's been you know, historically. Whether And yeah. I, think the, uh, I think the tribal thing is obviously important in the indigenous knowledge and preservation Super is obviously important. important, but we have these buckets, right? So um, I think uh, we have different buckets. I'm interested in all of them personally. Um, so uh, to, to move along, uh, Harry, I want to ask you another question. So I'm sure in your work with psychedelics, you've encountered uh, some barriers. So could you share just one barrier that you've encountered? And if these uh, recent changes in the industry have made that barrier more of a problem or less of a problem? Yeah, I mean, I would say the, the biggest barrier is legalization, right? And that, that was something that I was, I was uh, confronting, you know, even 10 years ago with cannabis, right? Because it was, you, you could use it in California, but if you were getting federal funding in your clinic, you couldn't, right? And so that's all mm. disappeared. And then I would say, you know, the biggest, the biggest barrier is seeing things like MDMA going through the trials, psilocybin going through the trials. I, I don't I don't do any underground work and so a big barrier for that is just legal, right? right. It's just like and, and I would say one of the things that's changed at least me personally in the last like four or five years is like primarily at the forefront being a patient advocate. I still don't do underground work. But at the same time, I, I have colleagues and people that I know that do, yeah. and I, I've become much more open to getting appropriate patients in touch with people that are doing that kind of work and then stepping away and, and just doing an introduction and 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 that and so I think that's also great because we can't wait for we can't wait for uh, the government and and uh, all the agencies to to get in line in my opinion right I do uh, I actually it's um it's uh, congruent what you're sharing with what I've experienced at the conference today so it's the first day of the conference but I've been here for now twelve plus hours <laughs> running interviews all day and. Um, what I've noticed is that I'll engage with people and people I, I think feel compelled within the first 30 seconds of the conversation to either uh, let me know that, hey, I'm a licensed medical practitioner yep. or, hey, I'm not licensed. And they're like really want to delineate it. Um, and I think that's like I think that's actually fairly uh, straightforward and fairly uh, congruent with um, the openness of the psychedelics community because most people who are here in a genuine way aren't trying to pull a fast one, right? right. They want people to know who they are. They want yeah. people to know what they're offering. And I think um, just like I was saying with the drug development or, or the 
the usage side of, you know, kind of an indigenous or a natural practice versus like uh, synthetics and like an FDA approved path. It's kind of a similar thing. It, it takes all types and, you know, there's different cost structures, there's different benefits, there's different comfort levels. Some people don't want to do psychedelics with a, with a medical uh, doctor and some people don't want to do it without a medical doctor. That's probably a good idea. No, people, both yeah. are good ideas. And I, and I think that's super important because as, as a clinician, like my, my first, you know, objective is to serve the patient, right? Right. And so that's a, that you get all sorts of different folks, especially in the Bay Area. Like you, you get people that have been doing this for a long time and they just want a little bit more structure. Yeah. And then you also have people that like, I mean, I think one of the most amazing things is just the people that are are opening up, you know, that are either cannabis naive or psychedelically naive yeah. that all of a sudden are seeing the data, seeing how people benefit, seeing friends benefit, yeah. and they're getting a lot more interested, but but that still doesn't mean that they want it in in anything other than the setting that they are looking for. Right, right. Well, Harry, I want to just give you the opportunity here at the end to share any, uh, just any other thoughts you might have um, in this moment. I mean, I, I, it's, this is also my first day and it's, I would not say it's overwhelming, but it's definitely not underwhelming. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, and definitely so uh, maybe, maybe I'll circle back on, on day, day uh, three or five and, 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 and say something. But I mean, I think ultimately like this is very positive and yeah. I think that, you know, we are a culture of a lot of different people. And I think that, you know, having the openness in the space for people to come and voice their interests and, and opportunities, I think is super good. Yeah. Well, let me say this. Uh, uh, Harry, uh, you are now a third timer on the pod. Uh, I believe you were on. Were you on Disruptive Realms I, with Bia? I, I, I was. I was on at the Red Barn in Mendo. Yeah. So no, live from Mendocino, the, you were on. You did one other with Bia. I would Bia in the oh, yeah, in my so, greenhouse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Harry was yeah. on. Uh, if you, if listeners, if you're enjoying what Harry's saying, check out Disruptive Realms, which also has uh, Doctor Bia Labachi, uh, founder of Shakuna. And then he's also on the live from Mendocino episode, which we uh, which we recorded yeah, up on the coast artwork. in Mendo. Yeah. Um, incredible stuff. So, um, uh, Dr. McElroy, Harry, thank you so much for joining us. Hoosiers forever. Hoosiers unite. And um, we'll see you real soon. Sounds good. Thanks, Nigam. All right, listener. Thanks for tuning in to the research-focused episode, the first of our three-part series, Live from Psychedelic Science. Thank you to our trusty audio engineer, Joe Leonardo, our amazing cover artists, and everyone who supported the booth and dropped by for an interview at Psychedelic Science. Stay tuned for the business and culture episodes dropping in the coming weeks. 